Okay, everyone, we are, it's 7.30, and we're doing this live. So uh, we're on. Come on in and find a place. Yeah, come in and, and sit close to us, because the HVAC system's on, and nobody knows how to turn it off. So there's, there's going to be a little bit of HVAC noise during the, during the whole proceedings. Um, but I'm really excited. This is our second, our second show. Um, we've got a little bit of wine, if you feel like you need a little liquid sure. nourishment. Um, and a little bit of cheese and stuff if you if you feel like you want the other kind of nourishment. Um, but uh, come on in. Yeah, so this is um, this is Dent Live, which is, it's our, um, got our live broadcast of our monthly podcast where um, we dig into topics related to Dent, which is largely related to making an impact and doing things that matter. Um, for those of you who are new to all of this, Dent takes its name from a Steve Jobs quote. Uh, you said, we're here to put a dent in the universe, uh, which we thought was really cool. Steve and I, this is my co-founder, Steve. Um, Steve and I founded Dent in 2012 in order to get a better understanding of what, what's kind of the magic and science behind groundbreaking success. Um, and it, it turns out that behind a lot of those stories, uh, at the heart of it, there are some sort of special moments uh, great conversations, a few important relationships that help make it happen. Uh, and we found that pretty inspiring, and we like to support that. So now we, we host an annual conference, which is called DENT. Uh, and through a new membership program that we have, and we call DENT Passport, uh, we offer a, a really in, an incredible set of resources and experiences to help people build the kinds of relationships that allow you to do the amazing stuff that our members do. Uh, and if you want to learn a little bit more about that, you can go to dentthefuture.com. Um, but on to tonight, one thing is I I'm really excited we have uh, to have Wool & Prince sponsoring the show tonight. Wool & Prince is a, a really interesting clothing company. They make um, these uh, great clothing products out of merino wool. Um, <laughs> and uh, we'll, get that. We'll, we'll get that in a moment. The dangers of doing a live show. Did your clothes survive? <laughs> Um, <laughs> the Wool and Prince makes some great clothes out of merino wool, which have some cool properties. Um, they're really they're more durable than other clothing, and and it, um, as I like to talk about, it doesn't collect smell as as much. So you can go without washing them for quite a while. Which so I'm very thankful which, for. <laughs> which <laughs> Steve appreciates in the office. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I love that they're sponsoring because I'm a customer. And uh, their shirts, this is one of their shirts, this is one of their shirts. Their shirts and their shirt are the only shirts I've worn for the past six months, and I really can't recommend them enough. Um, they're offering a 10% discount on your first purchase. Uh, if you use the code DENT when you check out, and if you want to go take a look at it, you can find their site at dentthefuture.com slash wool, as in the, you know. What's the brand name again? Wool and Prince, which uh, is kind of a bad name for audio because you don't know <laughs> which kind of Prince, and you can't. <laughs> but yeah, dentthefuture.com slash W-O-O-L, and you'll find their stuff. So uh, let's move on to tonight's sure. show. So we have a guest tonight. Steve, who do yeah, we have? Yeah, it's really awesome that we are able to connect with Martina Welkoff, who is a longtime denter, joined us at one of our very first events in Sun Valley, Idaho, and then was again with us in 2017. She's been incredibly busy during that period and during the current period. Um, Martina is a serial entrepreneur and investor with uh, 
growth and acquisition experience. She is a founding member of WXR, which is a fund dedicated to immersive tech. Uh, they invest in companies that focus on gender equity. She's also a, a venture board member of uh, the company in San Francisco. Jump, Jump partner. Right, venture yeah. partner who is in sort of a similar vein. Yeah. So They're not quite so focused in immersive. They're in emerging tech, but they focus on underserved founders. Underrepresented, yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. Almost had it. And underserved. <laughs> That's also accurate. Also accurate. Yeah. And in her spare time, she's on the board of Seattle Angels. Yes. And she advises for the leadership and strategic. I always even met. I, get, I can. Know, it's Center for Leadership, leadership and Strategic, strategic Thinking, thinking at, the at the University of Washington. <laughs> yeah. Right on. Yeah. So anyway, very you're, impressive that you remembered all of that. I know. I, I, <laughs> <laughs> what little? What part of it I did? So what did I forget? What else is kind of current that's really interesting to you? Um, so I have a, a VR production company as well that's sort of really a pet project at this point, but it's called Convene VR, and I produce unique social experiences for artists, activists, community groups, bring, it to bring people into VR and translate their stories into a way that a 2D audience can, an audience watching in 2D, not a 2D audience, um, <laughs> can understand and latch onto the emotional. And that's here in the Seattle area? Yes, yeah. Okay. So still doing a little bit of that, but really more focused on the funding side these days. And in terms of funding, where, I mean, you're, it's interesting because you've been on both sides of the equation. Mm -hmm. um, right now, how, how many companies a month are you looking at, personally? Um, gosh, that's a tough question. Well, just last month, probably about 200, but that was because we had applications come in for our, we run an accelerator alongside the fund, so every quarter or so, we do three a year, so it's a little longer than a quarter, we bring in eight new companies into the accelerator. So we were just evaluating applications for that last month. So I saw quite a few last month. Just this morning, I saw eight. I judged a pitch competition this morning. So it ebbs and flows a bit, but I would say 100 to 200 most months. Wow. And what currently is sort of got your interest peaked in terms of um, what sort of technologies or sort of leadership types or et cetera, what's kind of got your attention right now? So I'm definitely, as a lot of uh, my bio implies, really focused on AR, VR. Um, so in terms of technology, that's that's my core focus. Um, within that, I'm really excited about a lot of stuff I'm seeing in education, healthcare, um, and sort of social, but I feel like not the way we think of social in our current context, but uh, technologies that are really bringing people together in a, in a context much more like this, yeah. uh, human to human, kind of authentic, spontaneous, and um, something that conveys physical presence and the emotional connection that can come with that. So um, those are kind of the three places I'm most excited, but I'm also, I love games. My first company was a gaming company, so there's tons of really cool games out there. Um, there's some just really cool stuff happening in entertainment and core tech, honestly. A lot of the core tech stuff we see come across, like dev tools, infrastructure, it's super geeky and not as uh, easy to package to a, a sort of consumer audience, but it's really cool technology. So I get excited about kind of across the board, you know, what I, what I see. 
So I want to jump in and ask a little bit because something I've been thinking a lot about recently is the role of technology and how people connect, right? And um, that that seems to be at a sort of point of change right now uh-huh. in turn because it's sort of a two-way street. People have to, you know, people have a relationship to the technology that we use to connect with other people, right? There is an intermediary there. So I'm curious about your thoughts. If you want to be particular about Facebook, that'd be fine. But like, what, like, what do you think about where we are with technology that allows people to connect and like? Yeah, its, it's role? super interesting, and we are in a really pivotal moment, I think, um, in a bigger conversation. So, I'm going to rewind to my first company, Zealist, was really founded on the premise, and this was in 2010. So it's crazy to think about Eight this now. Ago. I know well, the world has changed <laughs> so much, but when we founded Zealist, it was really on the premise that we already felt like, my co-founder and I, uh, felt like Facebook and other social media platforms were great in many, many ways, but also we noticed how they were alienating people and and, um, isolating people from community in certain ways. And so we founded Zealist as sort of an antithesis to that in 2010. And so it's funny to think back to that now and also to the way our company evolved actually to be in some ways more like some of those uh, early social media platforms. Um, And now to be in this moment of, you know, really high levels of disillusionment and skepticism, and and rightly so, you know, there's been a lot that's just been discovered or at least kind of put into the public eye um, in the last few months in particular, but few years really, depending on how you look at it. And uh, I think it's really healthy. I mean, it, it all has happened very quickly when you think about it in evolutionary terms. And so, you know, we've, we've, kind of thrust these new tools out there and they've been adopted very quickly and very widely and and really uh, permeated our lives in intimate and um, immediate ways that I don't know that you know most people foresaw. And so um, just the pace of that change has been overwhelming. Um, and I think it's healthy that we're now taking a step back and reevaluating some of the assumptions we had about um, how these applications are really influencing our life and, and what the utility really is, what the value really is, and kind of reclaiming some of that power as users. And so, you know, I personally haven't gotten off Facebook or, you know, because there is a lot of utility still there for me, but I, I think, like many people, I'm much more cognizant of what I'm putting out there into the world and how it might be used. And I'm also, I mean, this is a sort of, funny example, but I had a really creepy Facebook moment the other day, actually. I was in Argentina a couple months ago, and just two days ago, I got this notification that said, so-and-so has tagged a picture of you. Uh, we, no, we think so-and-so has tagged oh. a picture of you. And it was a name I didn't know, <laughs> and I clicked on it, and it was a picture from when I had been in Argentina, taken by a complete stranger with whom I was not connected, and and, and it was just, and I, I, it was me in the picture, but it was so creepy <laughs> that they had found that. Did the, they, so did that person tag you, or did no. Facebook just say, Facebook. we think oh, this is your photo? Yeah. They wow, up, that is creepy. They just recognized my face. I was like, <laughs> whoa. Okay. Yeah, it was, it was really creepy. So, I mean, I don't know. I, I think it's a healthy moment. I think we're going to, I hope we're going to move through it in a way that uh, brings us to a place where we're in a better balance yeah. in the, our relationship with technology. Um, and I think VR actually, and AR maybe as well, will be an interesting component of that. Well, we, okay. we investigated that a few years ago. We had Nani De La Penis. Uh-huh. Oh, awesome. Events. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, that was where I became aware of this idea of how we can use VR and 
in her case it was VR, but I'm sure AR too, to help foster empathy. Uh-huh. And that was really, you know, normally you feel tech is very isolating, mm-hmm. but this sort of had the opposite effect. I mean, you spent spent a lot of time with that aspect of it. Yeah, so that's when what that's the kind of the key focus of Convene, um, which is taking less of my time these days, but still where a lot of my heart is. So um, yeah, the projects I've I've worked on and the production capacity, and also a lot of the projects I gravitate to when I'm looking at um, funding opportunities are um, definitely focused on either uh, directly bringing people together. In the case of a lot of what I do, I'm actually bringing people into VR for conversations, for experiences, and creating shared memories, Um, or evoking a sense of connection um, through the experience itself. So an example of that um, was something I saw recently um, at the, it premiered at the Tribeca Film Festival a few weeks back, and it was this really, really cool experience called Where Thoughts Go. And um, you would go, you went in by yourself, so there aren't other people alive in the experience with you, but there's all these little creatures floating around in different worlds, you can kind of navigate through different worlds, and you pull in a creature, and it's a recording of someone who's been in the experience before you, telling a story about a prompt, Uh. there's different prompts floating in the air, and then the way that you navigate to different worlds is you leave your own stories and release them into the ether, and they become part of this landscape. And so that's yeah. an example of an asynchronous experience where I mean, people were incredibly vulnerable in the um, stories that they shared. And it's, yeah. it's anonymous, but you're hearing their voice and you're kind of in, because you're in VR and you're in this kind of beautiful, surreal um, landscape that the artist has created, it's, it's just incredibly emotionally powerful. And so... There's a lot of ways in which VR can do that. Some of it is by putting you in someone else's shoes. There's a lot of talk about that, you know, really understanding another's experience. I think a lot of it is helping to, you know, if the three of us weren't in the same city, we can feel like we are, um, and we can create experiences together. Um, or there's, you know, really, artist, I've seen just artists doing really cool things and playing with really that environment. Yeah. Of course, we're like, I get you. If we were to get over, we go, hmm, how much space do you need to do that? <laughs> what? Well, I mean, that's... How much bandwidth do we need? That sounds like a really awesome thing to set up. I can, I can help you get a podcast going in VR if you want. Okay. okay. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Wait, what is that? Can Dan, I pick Dan Alt Live? I, I get to pick Jason's avatar. <laughs> <laughs> I get to pick Steve's. It's one big wine glass. <laughs> floating around. Feel me. Sorry. sorry. What? So one more question on VR just because and then we can because I know there's tons of other stuff you're doing um, I'm I VR is not yet something that I think of us having a persistent um, identification in mm-hmm. the way that I kind of feel like on the internet yeah. I'm kind of persistent at this point like yeah. what I put there is there people can find it I'm me but if I go join something in VR I could disappear I could, it's gone nobody can look it up later um, is that going to, ch- is that not true? It depends on the experience. Oh, okay. Um, I mean, for, for the most part, yes, that's true. Or at least much more so than it is on the internet. Do you think that because of that analog to reality, the way, the way that VR is set up to, to sort of mimic the way we w- go through the world, that, that that's something that's going to continue to be part of that controlling metaphor for VR? Or are we going to get to a VR world where it's like, oh yeah, it's all persistent, and everything you ever did in VR is sort of there and searchable and findable by someone else. I mean, it's, it's digital, so it is persistent. And there's a lot more you can measure in VR. And this is part of the worry, and I 
been a part of some really interesting conversations around the ethics of VR and data collection recently because you can, you know where someone's looking, you know, oh, yeah. I mean, there are ways to protect users from too much um, invasion of privacy, but, but even so, like, the temptation is certainly there um, for just to collect a lot of data and, and in a much more intimate and personal level than we've experienced before. So I, I would say it's, it, it, right now it's, you know, early and, the, you know, it's, there's not really a whole lot that I've seen at least going on in terms of, there's data collection in, um, in an effort to improve experiences and better understand, you know, just the UX overall. But I haven't seen so far a lot of personal data collection for the sake of advertising and that's kind, those kinds of things. But it's not far away. It's, it's yeah. definitely going to happen. And so that's a real that concern. Okay. Yeah. Um, and with, you know, if we imagine a future, which I do a lot, where we are completely screenless and, you know, AR and VR are irrelevant because it's all just around us all the time, then that starts to become, you know, potentially a very big problem, depending on how, how we regulate that, whether that's regulating from the outside, which may or may not happen, or whether that's sort of self-regulation from the industry, so. Well, linked to, linked to that is now the, sort of the other side of that coin. Is as you are talking to these startups that are in this space, um, what, how, what is the revenue model? Is there one, I mean, I'm sure there's multiple. Yeah. What are you seeing as the potential for revenue models going forward? So with VR, there are so few headsets in the world right now that really B2B plays, business to business, are the strongest. Um, and that, you know, see so a lot of that in healthcare, for example, or just enterprise applications in general. Um, another model that I, I like in the right context is B2B to C. So for example, I was just looking at a company that's working directly with brands to create these pervasive characters that will accompany people in different parts of their consumer journey in wow. AR and potentially VR and, and mobile. And, and so their, their revenue model is with the brands with whom they're engaging, but um, the you know, end, end user is, is your typical consumer. And so that's a nice way, particularly now, directly B2C is really hard outside of gaming. Um, there are some companies that are doing pretty well in, in gaming. But other than that, um, it's hard to do direct-to-consumer right now just because the volume of headsets is so small. And the demographic is very, very niche early adopter for the most part. So you're limited in, in what you can really do there. Um, with AR, it's a more of an open playing field because you know now so many of our phones are AR-ready. But there's additional challenges there. And, and the technology is even earlier than VR. So, so B2B is really probably the, what I would say, the safest bet for revenue right now. Um, but you know, I, that's not to say that a visionary B2C product wouldn't get my attention, as long as they're just thinking about the go-to-market timing in such a way that maps to what I think will, will be you know, a real opportunity down the road. What's your projection for headsets? You say there are hardly any out there right now. What yeah. Do you, what do you think the growth curve is going to look like? Oh, it's such a dangerous game to play. Right. Um, yeah. So in 2016, there, you know, everyone was, it was the VR moment, and the expectations were very, very high, and the projections were quite outlandish in retrospect. <laughs> so I'm careful in, in yeah. making predictions now, but I think 
I mean, just from a technology perspective, the hardware is improving so quickly, and there are so many big players investing a lot in um, developing better headsets. Um, so that's or just really, dropping the price of existing. Exactly. Ones. Well, right. Like which is it, it's Facebook, right? all helping. Yeah. I mean, there's it's 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 a competitive landscape, and even though in the venture community, the enthusiasm has. Um, died down a little bit for VR overall. In the corporate world, there's still a lot of money being invested. And so I think we'll see steady adoption at, for the next three to five years and, and really start to see it, it pick up pace in that three to five year range. So I don't I don't know that we'll have the moment. You know, for a lot of a lot of people have been saying, you know, what's the VR moment? What's the killer application? What's and I don't necessarily see it playing out that way. I think we'll see sort of you know, continual adoption and, and more options out there too. You know, there's different price points available now, different levels of um, sophistication in terms of technology. So there's just kind of a, a, a more complex and um, potentially customizable spectrum from which consumers can pull from. And then I think it will it will kind of sneak up on us when it's just suddenly a normal part of life. I, I don't know that they'll necessarily be the moment that, that people were kind of looking for two years ago. Um, but I think it's a great time to be investing because if, if you believe that sort of three to five years out is when it's really going to start to take hold, then this is a great time to be investing in early stage companies and map to that market development. So I kind of have to believe that. <laughs> so. Are you agnostic about headset manufacturers or do you have a preference? Uh, yeah. So, so WXR has a really, WXR is the, the fund I'm spending most of my time on these days, and we have a really unique structure in that we we're in a sense we're trying to be Switzerland in the industry because first and foremost, what we are what we stand for is is gender equity and, and inclusion overall, and so that's the platform we're building. And and to do that, we can't really pick sides in a sense. We pick all sides. So we work with most of the major brands out there in some capacity, whether that's sponsorship, in some cases it's investment, in some cases it's in kind support, but. We engage with almost all of the major players directly, and then they contribute resources to our platform. So, so from that standpoint, I'm agnostic. I do have a personal favorite, um, and so I I do most of my work on the HTC HTC Vive. That's my that's my favorite one. But um, but I've seen a lot of really you know impressive new headsets coming out just in the last few months, and there's a bunch more in the pipeline for the rest of the year. So. Um, I'm, I'm eager to, I, I, the, the more headsets on the market that are high quality, the better. You know, I think, um, and from my standpoint, I, I, the, the rising tide floats all boats. And so I don't, I'm not particularly invested in one platform winning out over the others. In fact, I think it's much better if that doesn't happen and that there are a lot of key platforms that are truly competitive with one another. So maybe this is a good opportunity to tell us a little bit more about how it, um, WXR got started, and I mean, tell, there's sort of certainly an implication from the letters WXR. Yes. Um, are you still on that course with the fund, or? Yeah. So. yeah. So we only invest in companies with significant female leadership. So um, either a woman with a major founding, major stake on the founding team, and or uh, at least 50% women on the leadership team. So we're looking for. Of, you know, gender diversity, and um, the thesis really is, and there's a lot of data to support this, that diverse teams produce better products, um, and that's that's what we're banking on, um, literally. So, 
uh, how it got started. I often say I'm an accidental venture capitalist, which is very true. I did not plan, at least at this stage in my career, I was thinking maybe venture capital would be an interesting thing to explore in the distant future. But shortly after I launched Convene, um, my first big project was another denter, Drew Kataka, and we worked together to um, launched this really beautiful immersive piece that she modeled after a poster she'd originally done um, for the Democratic National Convention. And it, it was this feminist piece of artwork. We brought um, women from all over the world, or excuse me, the country, um, inside of the art in VR and streamed a conversation about the political moment we were in just a few days after the Women's March. So it was part of this bigger conversation okay. and, and, um, and tied it to how VR could be a platform for political advocacy. And so it was kind of this really interesting project right out of the gate, and it happened to attract the attention of a venture capitalist named Marco Di Moraz down in the Bay Area. He's a general partner at the Venture Reality Fund, which is the largest fund focused on VR AR. Um, and so he reached out to me and said, I'd love to have a conversation with you about how we can better support women in the industry. And I... Um, agreed with a bit of skepticism because whenever I get requests like that I, I'm not quite sure of someone's intentions if it's about optics if it's just you know they want a PR strategy so they can check a box or whatever it is so I was not sure what what his motivations were but we sat down together in San Francisco a few weeks later and we talked for like three hours I almost missed my flight back to Seattle because there's just such a we had such strong value alignment he's such a kindred spirit and just so authentic in his um, in his desire to build a more inclusive industry and the opportunity we both saw to influence an industry at such a nascent stage that we could really mm. build the foundation in such a way that would mm. ripple out into the future and it could you know, have quite a profound effect in the long term. Um, so, so he was a big catalyst for all of this happening because he essentially said a few weeks after that and, and many conversations later, you know, if you want, if you want to build this, because we've really focused in on funding being a big uh, gap in in um, the ecosystem overall. Yeah, and he said, if you if you want to go for it, I will support you. And I, you know, and so um, so Venture Reality Fund was our first partner and and first committed investor, and they've just been incredible. Um, and so yeah, Marco's Marco's definitely been a big catalyst, and he introduced me to Malia Probst, who became one of my co-founders, and she brought in Abby Albright, who's our third co-founder, and the three of us just immediately uh, hit it off, and yeah, we're just off to the races from there. <laughs> so so it all happened very quickly, and it was just a matter of you know the kind of like the story you told in the beginning, Jason, of you know people coming together and finding those common passions and values and, and starting to, to build from there. So, Well, you're cheating yeah. me out of another question because I was <laughs> going to ask you about conversations. I don't know. I mean, maybe, maybe we'll round back to that later if there are other conversations in your life that you, as you reflect on it, you know, were really pivotal because um, that's, you know, I, we find that fascinating, mm -hmm. at least in the context of Dent. We think, think there's a lot, you know, a lot of that that drives what happens in the world. And by the way, at the end of this um, we're, this whole you know episode thing lasts an hour, and near the end of that, we're going to have some time for you all here in the studio to ask questions, and also for anybody who's watching on Facebook. Um, we do have somebody watching the, the chat feed, so if you want to get active there and ask questions, you can start doing that now, and we'll throw them in when it's Q&A time, um, but that'll, that'll happen in probably another 15 minutes or so. Um, so uh, back on the on the so the so the venture capital side of things is mostly what's taking up your time. 
these days. And how has that been? To, have you, you know, you were on, uh, I, I know as an entrepreneur, you worked with VCs. Um, but I assume that you've sort of had to forge a lot of your own pathways or like figuring out how to do this. Like what is the right way to be a VC, especially a progressive VC looking at opportunities with women founders in a new industry? Like what are, what's a big challenge that you've had in that, you know, Transition. it's been a year? or Yeah, about, and, about 18 months. So um, a year and a half. So what's yeah. a challenge that you've like tackled that you feel like, oh yeah, like that was unexpected but we kind of got this now. And yeah. Like, what was? I mean, it, the learning curve has definitely been steep and humbling. More. I mean, when I sort of started this journey, I I thought, well, I've raised money, so I understand the fundraising process. You know, yeah. how hard could it be switching to the other side of the table? But I I guess one of the biggest things I didn't factor in is really a key part of my. Of the job requirement is saying no a lot. You say no a lot more than you say yes. And I, I guess I knew that logically, but then once it kind of came into play and I was starting to look at more and more deals and have more and more conversations, it's just, I, I have such a heart for entrepreneurs. I know what it's like to be on the other side of that table. And I, um, it's really, really hard for me to, to, you know, tell a lot of entrepreneurs that we're not going to work with them. Um, so, that, I would say, emotionally and, and, I guess, stylistically has been really challenging to figure out how to do that in a way that's true to my values and honors and respects, you know, all the people I'm meeting with and, and the work that they're doing, while also, you know, trying to make the best decisions I can as an investor, which is another piece that I'm always trying to improve. And this is, I guess, the, the kind of lifelong, career-long pursuit is to learn what my system is for evaluating um, companies and, and pulling from the wisdom of investors who've come before me and also realizing that, I mean, I see just by virtue of the homogenous demographics represented um, overall in the startup world that that's a flawed system. So I don't want to uh -huh. completely replicate it. You know, I want, I want to adapt and learn and grow and really make it my own and look at my own biases and and better understand my own blind spots. Um, so that's that's a constant evolution and, and something that mentorship has been really helpful. Um, Marco's an incredible mentor and um, my colleagues at Jump Cannon, um, Josh Pino and, and Sam Samala are, are wonderful mentors as well. And um, and then, you know, other investors I've worked with over the years. So, so that's a big part of it. And then just really practicing like a, a muscle that flex. And I remember, um, the first time I spoke as an investor publicly, wearing that hat, was late last summer at a conference, and Marco basically had to push me on stage. Yeah. I was like, "I'm not ready. I'm not, this is and he's like, "You're ready. Let's do this." And he was on the panel with me, which was great. So I felt like, "Okay, at least uh -huh. I've got an ally I here. Can Things go really go I south." I can pass it that way. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it was great. We had a blast, and it was like fairly low stakes, but not that many people showed up, so it was fine. <laughs> but, and so that was so terrifying. And now, you know, not even a year later, I wouldn't say I like feel, I, I still get a little, it's still a new role yeah. for me to be in, but I'm so much more comfortable wearing that hat and kind of speaking, speaking from that, that identity. So, um, yeah, so I think a lot of it has just been kind of trying things out and, and um, flexing those muscles over time. Do you think that other than sorry, and then I'll shut up and you can ask questions. Do you think I like that, your questions? Do you think that other than the you know the stuff that you have designated about um, uh, women and VR, 
outside of that, is there anything that you think you've discovered about your approach or technique so far that you think is different than the mainstream VC? <laughs> Great <laughs> question. I can shut up and you can ask him. Yeah, but yeah like what have you? Is there anything that differentiates you on that front that that you've sort of noticed or discovered that's part of your philosophy? Yeah. So this is not just me. Personally, but WXR um, more broadly, we, we try to be as transparent and accessible as possible, um, recognizing that a lot of venture is based on networks. And in a way, that's great, but it also means that it shuts out a lot of people who don't have access to the, those networks and don't have access to the information they need to get to those networks. So, so what we've tried to do, I think that's really different than, than a lot of venture funds, is we've developed a very, very public brand and, um, and we have uh, application processes that are open to the public every quarter. So, and we try to advertise that as, in as many places as possible, really um, reaching out to a lot of different communities around, around the world, actually. We get applications from all over the world so that as much as possible, we're at least giving people the opportunity, whether or not they choose to apply, but putting it in as many places as we can so that we're drawing from a broader audience than a typical VC. And then trying, and again, it's imperfect, but trying to develop a process internally where we're being really honest about each of our own biases and blind spots and, and kind of watching, calling that out in one another and um, improving the system over time so that we can become um, less less vulnerable to some of those those pitfalls um, that have happened over in venture. We constantly cite the research done by NASA and Harvard on um, on crowdsourcing innovation and how non-traditional mm -hmm. participants yeah. are so important to, mm -hmm. you know, uh, creating the best solutions, mm -hmm. the best new innovations. So that's clearly what you guys are doing. When you have to say no, and I know you say no a lot, to these investors or these uh, entrepreneurs, there are a few common threads. I'm sure you know you start to see some patterns. It's like, oh yeah, they've got that all too common problem of what are yeah. some of some of the main reasons that you have to say no? Yeah, so a big one in VR is that um, there are so many incredibly talented creative people in VR developing really, really, really cool products or projects. Um, who don't necessarily have a business model. And that's so that's a big piece of feedback I often give is like, love what you're creating here, really, you know, beautiful or meaningful or you know, whatever it may be, but I need to understand the business case because ultimately we're very traditional in that sense of a venture firm and that we, we need to make money. That's that's what we're telling our investors, you know, that we're gonna be investing right. in companies that will provide a return for them. So so that's a big gap I see often is that there's there's a very strong creative orientation in the VR community overall. And sometimes um, there's not necessarily the, the business case to accompany that. And I think that's also a virtue of being so early um, and and to some extent, you know, the market hasn't formed yet, so it's really difficult to figure out what the business case is. But um, I think one of the pieces of feedback I got from an investor early on when I was pitching Zealus to my first company was um, he wanted to see really detailed projections. And I was like, why do you want to see these projections? It's just all made up and, you know, it's not going to be true to reality anyway. We all know that. I was kind of resentful of he was pushing me so much on this. And he ended up being one of my favorite investors. I'm still good friends with him. And, um, and he said, I need to 
understand how you think. It's not so much about, yeah, I don't, right. I, I realize you're not actually predicting the future, but I need to understand what the plan is and how you're thinking about every step and what you're, you know, what, how you're mapping that to milestones. And so this, it's, it's, it's a thought exercise as much as anything else. Um, and that, that was a, a big epiphany for me. Like, I like the live I hear, studio watching yeah, the like, stream. That's, I hear, that's I hear it. We got the echo. I thought I was in the twilight zone for a minute here. Yeah. <laughs> oh no, it's happening again. <laughs> but yeah, so I think just even at the early stage where I, I think most investors, at early stage investors recognize that you, know, you don't know what's going to happen. There's a lot you're going to learn along the way. But just having a well thought out under a uh, well thought out plan and a deep understanding of the market you're going after is so so important in building credibility and um, and also opens up the opportunity for investors to weigh in and you know who may or may not know more than you I will qualify that a lot of investors probably don't know more than the founders they're talking to about their market but sometimes maybe they do and so um, it opens up the opportunity for a conversation and for in investors to offer insight um, and maybe that's a great way to, to deepen that relationship. Well, now I'm going down the rabbit hole, but has, has it ever happened where someone comes in and they don't have the business model, but you go, wait, I think I have the business model for you. <laughs> it actually kind of has happened at least once, and it kind of terrified me because we had a conversation and I was like, well, I don't think what you're doing is going to work, but have you thought about this? And I won't give any details because I want to. Yeah. And then a few weeks later, she came back to me and said, we completely implemented everything they said. And I was like, whoa. I, like, and, and, so, and, I, and I, you know, TBD whether or not it will work out, but she was super excited. And this is very recent, so we'll see. But I was like, okay. Uh, I, I, you know, it's just a suggestion. <laughs> That's like me and my kids. It's like, I can suggest something. And I, I come back and they've taken it as an order. <laughs> it's like, yeah. oh yeah, I forgot I'm your parent. <laughs> you have to do what I say. <laughs> yeah. So how your your allocation of your investments, your portfolio, how much of it is Seattle or Washington State versus California, say? So with both funds we're just launching, so it's it's really, okay. really new and building that out. Right now, um, we don't have so with the, with WXR, we've launched the accelerator, and thus far we don't have any companies from Seattle. Um, although I've seen a couple of really strong applications, and I think we will soon. It's yes. just finding the right time. Um, but my intention with both funds is to bring a lot of that capital up to Seattle and the Pacific Northwest more broadly. So I'm spending more time in Portland and Vancouver, BC as well. Um, and actually, I mean, with WXR, just to kind of give you an idea of our geographic distribution from the accelerator perspective, we, in the first cohort, we had eight companies. Um, four were in California, but the remainder, three were in the Midwest, and one was in New York. And then this cohort, we have two in Canada, um, two on the East Coast. And so, so we, are, we do have a pretty wide geographic distribution. Um, and it is my intention definitely to bring more of that to the Pacific Northwest uh, over time. Awesome. But we're, we're, pretty, we're pretty new, so give me time. The gravitational uh, pull is okay. just beginning. Yeah, it's, yeah. yeah. Well, and it's also in my own best interest because then I don't have to be on airplanes on as airplanes. much. I was about to say, you've got to <laughs> so, be logging the flyer yeah. miles. Yeah, so. yeah. So, so I want to I bring us back to and kind of put you on the spot a little bit about conversations you've had in your life. Mm -hmm. Like, as, if you think about sort of pivotal moments, obviously we talked about a conversation you had where you almost missed your flight and you ended up becoming a VC. Um, <laughs> Are there, is there another moment that you think, as you reflect on yourself, like would you share with us 
you know, a pivotal conversation, a pivotal relationship, a pivotal moment. Maybe it was about, you know, co-founding your first company or maybe it was... Yeah, I mean, that's um, definitely the one that other. comes to mind, actually. And then so many, basically every aspect of my life now emanates from that, from founding my first company. So I feel like that's the, the obvious one. So um, my, my co-founder of Zealist is Britta Jacobs, who is my, still is... Uh, my best friend. I, I, a lot, we get that question a lot, like, oh, now that it's over, does it all fall apart? No, we are still friends. Um, but the, the conversation was at the moment. So we were in our mid-20s when we started Zealist, and we had worked together before, and then we each moved on to, to um, startups, and that's kind of where we caught the bug. We were, you know, yep. working with the founders, every day is different, like just, you know, all the chaos and wonderful aspects of working in an early-stage company. And so we started circling around, you know, like, oh, we could do this. We had just enough naivete and hubris. We're like, yeah, let's do this. We can totally do this. So we're, like, circling around different ideas. And, but it was, it was just talk for quite a while. And then, um, interestingly, this I, I, it's kind of a silly part of the story, but it's true. I was in Vermont with my sister who was living there at the time. And we went to the Ben & Jerry's factory because everyone wanted free samples. Mm. And it turned out that we saw, we, they have a little video about the Ben & Jerry's story. And it was essentially that they're two guys in their mid-20s. They had jobs that they were, like, satisfied with but not on fire about. They, were, they, they really wanted to work together on something they loved. And they decided that first, which was mm. a parallel with Britta and I, that we decided we wanted to work together before we knew what it was. And they said, we really love ice cream and bagels, and bagel makers are too expensive, so let's make ice cream. And that was essentially it. And then they started, and, you know, the rest is history. So I came back from Vermont, and I was like, Britta, we've got to do this. And I, I, I went to her. She uh, lived just down the street at the time. And I went to her apartment, and I was like, we are going for a walk, and we're not coming back until we have the idea we want to work on. And we walked 14 miles that day. We walked wow. all around Seattle, and we stopped for snacks, of course. Um, but we just walked and walked and talked and went through different, you know, we kind of just cycled around different ideas. And when we came back, we did have the very early idea that would become Zealist. Well, so, so that was definitely a very pivotal that's conversation. That's interesting because we, you know, we have this belief it starts with the relationship. You know, yeah. it's, it's based on the relationship. It's, uh, you know, people talk about networking. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, yeah. it's people, it's, it's farming, not hunting. Yeah. That's what we like to say. It's like, you know, let's start with the relationship. Yeah, but, And that's so what true. you guys did. I yeah. didn't know Ben and Jerry, same thing. Yeah, I know. Okay. Intr- I wrote them a letter once, but I didn't hear back. Oh, come on. I, They're no. still... <laughs> I was, like, was that those sample people that came in? Do you remember that? I remember them. They came in for the samples. <laughs> so do you have any... Any final questions from us before we do? We've got a segment that we do. Um, should we do that? Stump the band. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> we have, we have a segment. Round. So this is our second episode. And uh, we're, we're fortunate to be partnering with this wonderful venue in Southlake Union called The Collective. Um, it's this urban social clubhouse that's opened up. And they've got just a, you know, a really uh, a beautiful modern setting that includes a climbing wall. And, uh, and the parking's pretty good. And the parking. <laughs> parking is not For bad. those of you who do I'm not live with the in South Lake Union, it's the like... parking is okay. Um, and they have a climbing wall. And uh, as we've just sort of been alluding to, Dent, uh, at, we sort of in our DNA, we have this thing about sort of getting out of your comfort zone, doing something physical, um, getting sort of the blood going as well as, well, it's sort of like that's what feeds the mind. Um, and so we're asking each of our guests if they would like to go up on a 
uh, route on the climbing wall, and they're all going to do the same route. And uh, they're given a few. They're given a few opportunities to do so at various levels of grace, uh, and timed. And so we have a leaderboard actually uh, that began with the first episode last month. We had Rick Smith, the founder and CEO of Axon, which is this technology company that's producing. Uh, a lot of infrastructure and technology behind police body cameras. They're most famously known for tasers. And he went right up the wall. And so did Martina. And so I believe we have footage of your route up the wall here, um, which we should be able to queue up on this, on this screen and on the stream uh, and roll whenever uh, pretty much. All right. So here we go. This is the best run. Here I go. And you're going up. And you can see that she's following the blue handholds. You go around to the side. There's a little section on the side there, which... Uh, <laughs> which is tricky for everyone. Um, and up and up, up, up. Foot's oh, up a little too high I, for that I, lower foothold. I but, got a little. Eh, and then you go, you know what, never mind, I don't need that. <laughs> <laughs> up and over, and then the goal is to get two hands on that one way up top there, which is almost there, done. Good thing I have a reach. Yay! Just go for it. Take full advantage of your height, yeah. you know? <laughs> So, uh, yeah, and, then, uh, and then the, awkward and then the down. down climb, which we yeah. actually, we probably don't need to show. <laughs> so it's surprisingly here, hard to climb down. It is. It, <laughs> I, that is my one complaint about that route, is it's hard to come down from that, yeah. uh, from that top. So here we have our leaderboard. You can see that Rick Smith did it in 24.15 seconds. Uh, that was what was set. So we're going to find out if Martina did it faster or slower. So yeah, where did Martina go? It was oh, just not a too much bit longer, slower. Okay. 26.8 right, seconds. Okay That's a good that. showing. That is not that, that much longer. That is a pretty good. Yeah, I feel okay about the route. guy that develops tasers and what. Yeah, yeah, I'm okay with that. Right? I mean, he was pretty, you know, in shape. He was yeah. like, ready to do it. So I, there was. <laughs> I am proud. I am. Yeah. I am a you proud second. Be. You should <laughs> I would be. I wouldn't even do it. <laughs> <laughs> if not for my little dangling foot incident, I think I could oh, have beat him. But I was like, where's that, where's Where that is toe that? hold? Yeah, that was probably two seconds right there. Yeah, darn. Well, Next, we'll have right. to have you back on the show. All right, that's not too bad. Yeah. Um, so at this point, we have a, a few minutes left. I don't know if, Steve, if you have a, a question or if we should just no, go out to the audience. Let's, let's throw it out to, to the folks here in the studio if you've got... Um, any questions, or we have a question from online. We can start with that, actually. Go ahead and, I don't know if we have a, do we have a microphone to, for that at this point in time? Or, no? Okay. So go ahead and call it out, and I'll repeat it. Yeah. Uh, so from Elizabeth Grigg, uh, we have sometimes technology catches us short-sighted. Like Facebook did not predict their role in the elections. How can you better predict the role of VR and AR in elections, privacy, or anything? Yeah, so when technology is yeah. sort of, our, we have a short-sighted view of how technology can affect our society. How can we predict, how can we do a better job predicting with VR and AR, where that's going to take us, what are the risks? So this is where I feel a little bit, I, I start, you, start beating my drum, but um, I really think diversity is, is an absolutely crucial component to that. And if oh. we have more voices in the room and more perspectives represented, it's, it's never going to be perfect. There's always going to be unforeseen outcomes, you know, and a lot of this is an experiment. But if we can get more of those voices at the table, um, we will have better products that are, um, I think, I think more ethically developed oftentimes. So, so that's a big part of why, um, why I'm so passionate about WXRs. I think diversity is just such a huge component to avoiding the kind of group think and um, myopia that can develop as a result of teams that don't don't have that diversity. So 
I think that's a good answer. I'm going to push on that for a second too because I want to go a little farther on that. It's like I, I'm not necessarily convinced that just having a diverse group of people yeah. working on something is going to, because we're talking about, you know, uh, ethical, legal, structural, at least incentives. if I'm interpreting, or yeah, incentives. Mm -hmm. um, you know, is there? You talked earlier. You mentioned maybe it'll be regulation from outside. Maybe mm -hmm. it'll be regulation from within the industry. Like, do you have an opinion? on which approach is preferred and... I mean, I always prefer self-regulation from within the industry because, I, I mean, I, I, like many people, probably are pretty disillusioned with government in a lot of ways right now, and, um, and it, it just lags behind. It's reactionary most often. It's very, very rarely proactive. And so I think as an industry, if we can self-regulate and get in front of some of this, and it's going to, it's, again, it's imperfect. I'm not, I'm not proposing that this is going to be like a a silver bullet by any means, but I think I am very encouraged by the conversations I'm having with my peers right now and people who are really influencing um, what the industry is going to become in their thoughtfulness and commitment to uh, to trying their best to architect solutions that won't follow the same the same pathway uh, as those before them. So, so I'm definitely much more in favor of self-regulation as far as it can take us. I'm not against external regula regulation. I just think the speed and um, adaptive nature that, that we can achieve as an industry will just supersede anything that, that government can do. And so hopefully we can avoid having to have too much regulation, um, ideally. Um, and yeah. so we'll, we'll see what happens. But, but I do think having different people at the table, if it's if it's thoughtfully, and, and I mean diversity on, on every dimension, you know, um, you know, people coming from different schools of thought and, and different ex areas of expertise, um, different communities can just really offer perspectives that, that could balance out, you know. A, a, totally, my challenge was yeah. necessary, maybe not sufficient. Yeah, right. yeah, totally, so, yeah. totally. Yeah, I think there's a, there's a framework that has to happen within in order for, for those results to really, you know, uh, look, look very different than what we've seen in the past. Cool. Anyone else in the room? Sure. Yeah, sorry. Oh, oh. Yeah, so uh, my question is about, like, in your uh, view for the POCs, uh, for example, women, uh, if they don't know anything about programming, they they really into VR. Mm -hmm. What kind of pathway for them to be like the founder somehow at one point in time? So. Like, What's the what's the path for women to become point. founders? Yeah, Especially non talk non technical background. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, that's a long it's a long exactly. pathway. But the, yeah. I'll start I'll start with the entry. So, um, in Seattle in particular, there's a lot of really amazing places to plug in. As you know, I, there's a little bit of a leading question here because I just learned about a program uh, geared at just this very issue. So so there's a lot of really cool opportunities in Seattle, um, like the Female Founders, uh, Female Founders Fellowship. Female Founders Fellowship. Thank you. Um, that is is um, look, looking at exactly this. How do we? Yes. Yeah. So how do we how do we on ramp uh, people from outside of the technical community into VR or AR? Um, and I think I mean I really think it starts with just showing up at a meetup or showing up. At, at even even an event like this, I mean, this is less geared at solely VR, but just starting to get to know people and um, listening to podcasts, listening to, there's so much information available publicly. Um, you can do Unity tutorials on Coursera, things like that. 
Um, but but I, you know, going back to the theme of relationships, I really think the best catalyst, in addition to some of that pragmatic work that is very important, especially if you plan to go into the technical roles, um, is just starting to meet people. And I've found in Seattle and elsewhere, um, the community, VR communities tend to be very welcoming and open because no one really knows what they're doing yet. So it's all, it's kind of like this, this kind of playfulness and humility and openness. Um, so I, I think there's, yeah, it's really, that's really beautiful in that regard. And I would hope that people aren't intimidated to step into that. I can understand how the technology can be very intimidating. I was, I mean, it's, it's a huge paradigm shift in the way we think about technology and, I, I actually built um, the computer I'm using to power my headset now because I've always been really intimidated by hardware. I'm a software person. That doesn't scare me, but hardware, oh, God, wires, I don't know. Um, so I built the computer because I wanted to overcome that, and, and you know, I had help. I didn't do it on my own. But, but I think as much as you can challenge yourself and just start to experiment and find people who will support you in, in taking those steps outside of your comfort zone, finding that community, um, that's definitely a great launching point into. And then there's formal programs um, like the one you're running that can help accelerate that path um, when you're ready. But if you're just kind of tiptoeing in and want to get a sense of what's out there, I, I really think just going to a meetup is a great way to have some conversations. Oh, nice. I think so oh. there's one over there, and then we'll get you there. Go ahead. Um, so I'm a game designer, and um, I chose game design because I also The issue that I found is that my non-gamer friends are, um, there's compelling content that's out there that I yeah. want them to try, but they're like, I don't have a console, I'm not going yeah. to a console, I'm not interested. Um, and my question really is, with VR, do you see that being the same problem where lots of people don't want to purchase a headset? And what do you think it's going to take for not just VR, but I think that gaming kind of has to come before that in some way? Yeah. Totally. So, so I think. Oh, sorry. So, so the question, question is, if I can summarize, and hopefully not butcher it, is that it's a challenge to get VR content in front of people because they don't have headsets. And what is going to be the thing that is going to get people to purchase the equipment that's going to make it a market? Yeah. So I think location-based entertainment is going to be a huge, huge. Um, bridge to the in-home um, systems and uh, in a way that a couple of years ago I think people were underestimating the importance of location. So what I mean when I say location-based entertainment is arcades or um, ex experiences like The Void. I don't know if you've heard of The Void but it's this really cool arena style experience where people have um, they're, they're tethered to backpacks so that the computer's in the backpack and you have uh, room scale VR with other people and these really cool experiences. So I don't think there's one in Seattle yet, but they have locations around the country. Um, so I th yeah, I think that's a, a crucial component to giving people, I mean, I demo VR for the first time for a lot of people. It's one of my favorite things to do, actually. I kind of want to start a YouTube series of first time <laughs> VR people. Um, and I always try to just knock their socks off. It has to be the most amazing. Yeah, it, no, they, it, they absolutely cannot throw up. And that does happen sometimes. You know, if you don't have, there's a variety of reasons that it can go wrong, whether it's a scary experience, the content's not right, whatever. There's a lot of technical reasons that it may not be a great experience. So I take the responsibility of kind of being an ambassador to VR very, very seriously. But of course, that's limited capacity. And so that's where I think the location-based entertainment opportunities are really important. Um, and also... 
I mean, right now, so there, uh, there's an arcade, arcade in Ballard um, that is, uh, I think, offering a pretty positive experience and a pretty wide array of content. But even that can be intimidating for people to walk into, you know, if, if they don't identify as someone who goes to an arcade or, to, you know, there's all of these ways in which, you know, it might not appeal to people. Um, so I also think having things like SIF has a great VR um, section right now where people can experience uh, VR films and, and CG experiences in addition so to... That's the Seattle International yes, Film Festival sorry. happening now. Yes, exactly. Yep. Yeah, so, or I was just at Tribeca a couple weeks ago and it was the same thing. And so there's kind of these pop-ups that are happening more and more where um, people can jump into a headset, try one or two things, get a sense of it. And maybe they'll have to do that four, five, ten times, who knows, but but if they're exposed to enough and it starts to be normalized, that's when I think, and, and simultaneously the price point of the headsets dropping was helpful as, as well, of course, but but I, I hear, I, I um, you mentioned earlier, you know, the type of content being so important too, and that's something where I think we all, the, the industry, there, there's, there is a lot of really great content out there that's outside of just the type of games that might appeal to a narrow demographic, but I think we need to do a better job of elevating and showcasing that and offering it to people. Like one of the companies um, in our first cohort is building these amazing pets in VR, like dragons and their pervasive characters. Cool. And they mostly work through arcade deals and people come back to the arcade just to visit their pet. Like they're, they don't even, they just hey, check in with their pet talk. every day because they, they have this emotional bond with a virtual character. And things like that I just think are so cool and so yeah, different than, yeah. Um, so yeah, I think location-based is going to be really important in the near term and, that, and in the permanent sense and also in these kind of pop-ups that are happening more and more. The, the uh, challenge there, of course, though, is uh, keeping it hygienic so that no one, like I have so many friends who've gotten sick from public VR stuff. So if you do do, P PSA, if you do Bring VR, <laughs> yeah, to make sure, I mean, a good, a good, installation should be cleaning them in between or should provide some kind of like that that is a real it's a real thing so truly keep that in mind yeah. okay you had a question over here yeah behind you started the conversation a little bit of talking about uh, technology connecting people in the real world yeah and i have heard about some really cool um kind of opportunities for vr to help with empathy and understanding other people's fights and, and uh, whether it's diversity training or like moral training or whatever um, you see opportunities for VR that can still help connect people in the real world. And what would those look like uh, outside of the context of living in a virtual world, but still facilitating relationships and connection and shared experiences in the real world? So I think this is where. Do we want to um, oh, yeah, go ahead? Can you summarize? Yeah. It was, I think. Synopsis was sort of expand more on this idea of using virtual and augmented reality tools to connect with people in the real world. So this is kind of where we get into the mixed reality territory. And I'm sorry, I feel like I should talk no, to you and kind of face this way. Um, and that's an interesting category right now. Um, it can mean a lot of different things, but but in the future, what I think mixed reality will mean, and where it gets really interesting, is where we can. Um, connect cross-platform and in the physical and virtual environment simultaneously. So imagine, um, let's say I'm in a Vive at my studio in Kirkland, and we've got some people over here in Hall lenses, and then we've got someone in uh, Southern California in another headset of some sort. So what we could, actually we can to some extent even do this now, but it will be a lot more seamless in the future. We could have 
you know, me joining as an avatar and the people in Holland is here physically together, sitting next to each other, seeing my avatar and then seeing another avatar coming in from maybe it's a hologram or, you know, there's a lot of ways in which those, those could be displayed. Um, and so, so I think the physical and virtual will become less and less, the, the division will become blurred. And um, so you can, you can very much integrate digital environments into a physical environment and from a social perspective have you know, people physically present as well as people digitally present in a physical environment and kind of have those experiences coexist simultaneously and someday seamlessly. It's not seamless now, I will say. It's very clunky now. But we will get to a point where that, that could happen seamlessly. Um, and, and you could potentially even share virtual environments in, in a physical world. So you could have digital overlays and you could see what a person in, a person who's just in VR could see a similar environment to what people are seeing in a physical environment. So that's, and I just, I think that's really exciting. I think it's kind of scary uh, to certain people and there's certainly a dystopian way in which you could take that. But that's where I think it'll get really, really cool. When we can kind of have, we could have people joining us, that, you know, if there are people watching on Facebook, they wouldn't just be on Facebook, they'd actually be, they'd be sitting here oh, and we'd yeah. see them we'd see and the we could see their body language. And we could, I mean, that's what's so yeah. cool about it and what I really underestimated getting into VR, you know, we have video chat, we have these ways in which we can already connect on digital platforms. So I think there's some like, oh, this is just, you know, the next video conferencing. But it's so different because when we're sitting here, um, on a video chat, like when I make eye contact with you, or I go, "Oh, Steve," you don't know. You it's, right. you don't you don't get any of that subtlety. You don't, right. and so um, you just all the body language, all the communication that happens outside of just what we say and even our facial expressions um, is so important. And yeah. yeah, so so we'll get to a point where I, I'm just going to go ahead and say that is going to happen. And, <laughs> um, and and yeah, I, that's what I'm really excited for. We're the first visual, virtual first date. Yeah. Oh, it's already, people have already gotten married in VR. Yeah. Oh, I <laughs> that, missed it. That, <laughs> do we that have time happens. for one more? Or? Yeah, let's do one more and then we'll. Um, and we, by the way, we're going to, I don't know when you have to leave. You might be able to mingle a little bit after. Yeah, I can or, definitely okay. stick around so, and chat too. Let's get, let's get your question. Uh, what's happening with healthcare? And I have quite formally my question, but my sister had a stroke and Satchel's for uh -huh. awareness. And I'm trying to raise awareness for First of all, is it because of stroke? Is there a way, or are you seeing the future where people can uh, can understand somebody's having a stroke, or maybe with this I can understand dyslexia, so I can try and go in? Is there any in that direction? Yes. So where is VR going in, in health and medical, and in particular related to strokes, national stroke awareness month? All right. Cool. Yes. So there is actually a company I just saw that, of course, I can't remember the name, but I can find it for you. That is, it's in the UK, working on strokes specifically. Um, but there's a lot of other companies, some of which we're working with. Um, there's one called Embodied Labs in LA that's just joining our most recent cohort, and they're um, providing first-person experiential education on dementia and I believe Alzheimer's as well, um, so that caretakers can better understand the experience of people they're working with. Um, and then in healthcare more broadly, so there's kind of a few different buckets here. There's the training component where you're training a provider um, out, out in the world. It's sort of more about understanding someone's experience and building empathy. And then there's kind of the more tactical side. So another company we're working with is up in Vancouver, BC, called Conquer Experience. And they're building a um, series of simulations for periop nurses to train on surgical procedures in, in huh. VR. 
really, really cool company. Um, and then there's the therapeutic application. So there's actually companies that are working on treatment, and there's some just amazing stuff happening there, like really, really transformative. Um, a couple of examples. Um, one of the companies we worked with in our first cohort is called StoryUpXR, and they're using a brain-computer interface, so a headband that measures brain activity, to power their VR experiences so that they can train people to think more, cog uh, more positively and retrain their cognitive yeah. pathways. So um, they've, they've been able to decrease rates of depression and anxiety by having people play these games where you, the only controller is your brain. Um, and that in, your, in these virtual environments where you're advancing That's through the cool. game by thinking differently. Um, so it's one of many, I mean, there's another really cool example that UW was involved in the research for this where they've been able to prove uh, VR, they built this icy landscape and they used it to treat um, burn victims while their bandages were being changed and it was more effective than morphine at pain management. So there's some really, really cool stuff happening in healthcare. I love looking at some of the healthcare stuff. Yeah. We have one more on, online. I'll find out okay. the stroke What's company that? for you Let's do it. Sure, we want to one encourage this. We're doing the online one. Sorry, you guys are here. You get to. You guys are here. You get to hang out with her after. But let's let's hook the online viewer up. Oh, hey Kyle. Hi, Kyle. Kyle can talk to her later. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's been running. Uh, just know, is there a board or task force being put together to establish ethics around the use and abuse of VR? We're now hearing execs and product designers coming forward talking about how our phones, social networks. And other products have been so effectively built to exploit our dopamine hits, they're having threats. Does VR take manipulation of mirror neurons for a culture? So, to rephrase, well, is there a board or some you know, governing, governing group body agency who's working on this? Keep a check on abuse of our chem body chemistry and. Yes, you know. yeah. Yes, there, there are a few actually. Um, and I think. The challenge is, so, so yes, there's I, at least two I can think of that are highly influential, although this is the challenge with self-regulation. The only real power they have is, is sort of in terms of the sphere of influence of the people who are right. participating. And the, but, but I think the visibility and the accountability that they can um, leverage in order to, to motivate people to sort of sign on and participate is, is significant. Um, but yes, there definitely are uh, at least a couple of these groups I'm aware of, and I'm sure there are, are smaller ones in different communities. And it's an ever-present conversation happening at really at every level of, of VR communities I've agreed with, I've uh, interacted with. Um, so I think that's very encouraging. Uh, the, the challenge is, of course, translating those conversations into action and, um, and, and to maintain that kind of degree of accountability. And I think that is going to continue to be a challenge over time, but um, and as as Kyle's question alluded to, the uh, psychological vulnerability in VR is heightened, and we don't fully understand that yet, and we may not ever fully understand that. That's going to be a constantly evolving um, process, and, and there's more research that needs to be done. But I do. I do think that we're, I, I think that it's it's interesting that VR is kind of coming into maturity in this moment of disillusionment with other mm. technology platforms. And I hope that what that will imbue is a sense of um, thoughtfulness and, and uh, readiness to, to slow down in some senses in order to 
avoid some of that. I think I think it's kind of a cautionary tale that yeah. is happening right in the time when we're kind of really growing up in a sense. So so I'm hoping that that's the effect. That's will remains to be seen, of course. But I hope Thanks. to be a part of that as well. <laughs> so I, so as some closing notes, just real fast. Um, I wanted to say one of other uh, our our. Other sponsor, our, our additional sponsor is actually Bootstrapper Studios. Bootstrapper Studios is, are the folks who are helping us broadcast this on Facebook right now. They've been doing uh, the video for Ignite Seattle, uh, I think basically since it began for like 12 or 13 years, and they do a fantastic job. If you're looking for video work, live or recorded, they're fantastic folks to talk to. Talk to Adam Weigel before you leave, or uh, you know, look them up uh, online for those of you watching on Facebook. Um, it's called Bootstrapper Studios. And um, and, it's, and the logo is right there. Um, and then as a, and a, a final note on, on Wool and Prince, they actually have this, the clothing brand. They have an online community as well that focuses on sort of living, simply living well. Uh, you know, and it's called uh, onlywhatmatters.com. And they actually let me know before the, before the episode, they said that they would do a, uh, there's a, it's like you apply to join the community and it, you get a free year uh, if you put, if you mention Dent in your application. So... Um, just a reminder, they're they're great. I love the I love the clothes. Definitely check it out. Um, thank you, Martina, for coming on the show. Thank this you. is this really is fantastic. I, 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 All right. Yeah. Yeah. I'm gonna get so <laughs> Okay.